The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture for today is Psalm 132, if y'all want to open your Bibles. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it in Epaphrath. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kelly. So I wonder how many of you have said in the last week or have heard someone say as you've watched TV or something else, said, oh, that's obviously a pre-COVID show. Or, yeah, that was, that was before COVID happened. I mean, how many times have we said that? I said that a ton. Uh, as much as, you know, August, and this is the week that probably in several of our uh, categories of when the seasons come, it's football season, it's a weird one, it's not working. Like, remember when we could go see football games, right? Remember when people were actually gathering to play? You know, like all those remember wins. It, what, 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 it's nostalgia, right? We, we have that. Uh, nostalgia is um, a powerful thing. And we're having oftentimes to be thrust in the middle of it because right now we're going, what is the no- new normal? This is the new normal, is this? I mean... You know, don't we hate that phrase now? All those phrases that we used to hate, this is the new phrase we hate, the new normal. Um, but it's nostalgia. It's things we, we long for. I, when I was, uh, often when I go back and visit my uh, family, my sons will go uh, into my old room and they'll find stuff. And they brought stuff back, like, you know, my old football helmet or things like that, you know. And uh, my wife always jokes, if you, if you remember Napoleon Dynamite, Uncle Rico, uh, was one of the characters she said that's what I would grow up to be if she had not married me or he's just constantly in the past man if I could just go back I'd win state he said you know he's talking about playing football you know that my sons have all they pull all these memorabilia out and I'm forced back to think about all these memorabilia. they're like what's this what's that what's that and it makes me think nostalgia is a very powerful thing if you look it up 
uh, if you just typed in the, the power of nostalgia, I mean, you get a litany of things in Google. I was, I was interested to see kind of you know, anything from, you know, uh, just periodicals to Scientific American to all these things. You talk about the power and the imp importance of nostalgia. Um, you know, as we've been looking at these psalms, these psalms, particularly Psalms 120 through 134, we're looking at what's called a set list, uh, kind of a, a list of songs that were sung by pilgrims who were traveling some 90 miles away to Jerusalem for festivals to worship the Lord. And all, um, most of the time, these songs were things that were digging back into the past. They were bringing up things. If you, if you paid attention to this one, there's a lot packed in this one, a lot of history. But this was a huge nostalgic song for them. And most of the time when they were singing, I mean, think about this. You, you, you know, Kelly read through this in a matter of minutes. Imagine singing this over a number of miles, hearing and repeating this and some other songs. You, you burn it into your brain again, this nostalgia of what, what was the great heights of, of Israel. Because they would have sung this song past this time of when David was at his height King David, maybe even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, one of the key figures, but they would reach back into nostalgia to, to, to reach back and, and, and it would touch something for them, touch something of not just their uh, current present situation, but some hope because nostalgia touches a lot of things when we, we touch it. It's, we reach back to it to sometimes <clears throat> feel it and feel ourselves and, you know, like uh, the house that built me, Miranda. Lambert singing, if I could just touch this place, go back, I thought I could find a piece of myself again. Those kind of things is what nostalgia, we hope, does. But when the Bible does this with nostalgia, it's connection to history in the past. What it's trying to do for us is to get us to understand that nostalgia isn't something we just remember and think about the good old days. It's actually something that's a projection into the future of what we hope. It's something that is, something we've touched, tasted, seen, smelled, that's going to actually be our future. It's a taste of what glory is. And so we're going to look at this psalm that some think was written by Solomon, possibly. We don't know for sure, but they think that because in verse 10, you read this verse that says this, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Someone is reaching back to the past. Someone here, probably Solomon, his son, but maybe somebody else that's really wanting to connect to this relationship again that David had with God so that they can understand what it's like to have that relationship now. Wouldn't we want that? Don't we want him to connect to us in that way? Uh, Ravi Zacharias, who's a, a theologian and, and thinker, when he talked about how people connect to in our current culture connect to past, present, and future. I love how he said this. He said, conservatists look to the past and become traditionalists. Existentialists look to the present and become pragmatists. Liberals look to the future and become idealists. But we, meaning those of us who want to follow Christ and what that means, want to learn how to glean from the past, live in the present, and hope for the future. And that's what the psalm is. It's, it's saying, how do we live right now understanding that relationship with God by looking to the past and then with hope for the future? We're going to look at those two things. You know, as I mentioned, um, as you look at this, and it says, even the very beginning, verse uh, one of the psalm says, remember. 
Uh, How often is that word used in the Bible? Remember, just remember. Hearkening back to the past, touching something back there. Uh, Nostalgia, like I said, is a powerful thing. Even in the lives of many, it's even brought people to faith in Jesus to touch nostalgia, particularly one large one that maybe you've heard of is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis came to, he was uh, not a Christian at all. He could have cared less. In fact, he thought it was ridiculous. Just another story on a chain of stories until he started to really touch back to things that, that hearken back to his past. And nostalgia pushed him to think that. This is what he said. He said, the sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to reach the mountain, to find the place where be, all, uh, where all the beauty came from, my country, the place where I ought to have been born. Do you think it all meant nothing, all the longing, the longing for home? For indeed, it now feels not like a going, but like going back. And what he was referring to is something that's actually even older than his language. It's called sinsucht. I don't know if you've heard this word before. Uh, He talks about it in his uh, language. It's a German word called sinsucht. It's a a touching. It's a, a sensing. Uh, it's a reaching back. And, and when the Germans talked about the sinsucht, it's something of, of feeling something better, right? It's like going home and sensing something. It's like being out here. It's like smelling of, I remember there's a distinct tree and I don't even know what tree it is. I think it's a sweet gum tree. But when I smell it, it transports me back to my backyard in Dallas, Texas, being an only child, playing around, you know, with my dog since I didn't have brothers and sisters, so I played with the dog a lot. And stepping on all those little sharp, you know, round Barbie things, you know, those little round things, the sweet gum tree drops and you step on those and this distinct smell that it draws out. And how, I remember how my lawn, even in the backyard, just kind of curved downward. It sloped in the back. And I remember how there were patches of grass and patches of dirt. And I remember where the shade was and where the fence was and where all those things, that smell takes me right back to that point. And the purpose of it is, and when, when C.S. Lewis talks about it, is, and sinsuk, is that not that so much we're, we're going backwards, but the backwards reminds us of what is forwards. That nostalgia is something huge. And this particular song, it says, remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get in my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids, give slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Okay, what in the world is going on? Uh, what this psalm is about is touching back all the way to the history books of Israel. First, what are called First Samuel, First, Second Samuel, uh, First and Second Chronicles. They're in, earlier before the Psalms, and essentially they laid out the map of <clears throat> history of of the kings of Israel, particularly David, the ultimate one who brought this in. And at this time period, what's being sung about is that the ark, all the way back from the beginning, was lost. Remember the Ark? You probably heard of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, a little different than that um, was from in the Bible. But the Ark, similarly, what it was, was a small a box, a chest that was created out of gold in Exodus when Israel was just coming out of Egypt. It was about four feet long, two feet wide, overlaid with gold. It had three very important things in it. It had a pot of manna that when the Israel wandered in the desert... <clears throat> 
They, they put a pot of, you know, God provided for the manna and food, put a pot of, desert, pot of manna in this. It had Aaron's staff in it. And it also had what all of us may remember as the Ten Commandments. Remember the Ten Commandments? They were in this box. And the importance of the ark wasn't just that David wanted to go back and, and find this ark. And it's mentioned here. Um, it says, arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. The ark was powerful. And, you know, we remember the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you remember this, old movie, Indiana Jones, very first one. It was about whoever has the ark has the power, right? A uh, little different than that. For him, it was, for David, in this nostalgia, it was reaching back to a time when, when the ark was lost and Israel was trying to really establish itself as a nation. And David sought it out and found it. And when he brought it back, what he wanted was God, he didn't want the ark, he wanted the ark to be a centerpiece of God's presence there with his people. And, and it says even in uh, verses three through five, it says, he will not enter my, I will not enter my house. You see several quotes in here, right? Quotes from the past. Anytime you see quotes, you, gotta have to ask, you kind of have to ask yourself if you're reading the Bible, like where is this from? <laughs> That David literally, not literally wouldn't sleep, but what he's figuratively trying to say is, I will not rest until I find a place for the, get the ark and find God's dwelling place to be at the center of our worship and us as a nation. Because it wasn't just an experience for David. It wasn't just something that he wanted to long for. It was something he wanted to have. He wanted to have God's presence in his midst. He wanted to reclaim that. And the ark was the place on the lid where they had two angels of gold facing one another with wings outstretched. And this was the place that was called the mercy seat. And it was here where God would meet his people. It wasn't just a box you carried around and then in the, the box itself had power. It was the fact that when the box was there, this is where God said, I will meet you here. And why on that seat? Because it was on that seat where they would take blood from their sacrifices and sprinkle it because there needed to be some sort of bridge between them and God and David knew it and the nostalgia piece is a longing back for don't we long to just be with God like the nearness of God the closeness the intimacy the thinking, thinking opposite of what had happened long before this in the Garden of Eden that you can read about where the presence of God was lost because Adam and Eve decided on their own, hey, we're gonna just kind of try and live without God. And what the first thing that happens when they take the fruit is what? They hide from his presence. And we've been doing it ever since. And that's what we all feel. And that's what we all experience is the shame, is the, the longing to be with God, but the feeling of there's, there's this piece of me. We confessed it earlier that I, I just can't meet him. Maybe it's been a long time since you felt close to him or feel it or go. You, maybe you uh, try and come to church regularly or spend time in the Bible or read or pray or those kind of things and it just feels difficult or to struggle. Maybe it's just circumstances in your life you think of that. What, what, is, what is the struggle here that's happening? <clears throat> David, in his passage, was bringing back the ark because he wanted the centerpiece. He wanted his heart to be recentered. He wanted his life to be changed. 
Because he knew this. The only way the presence of God could happen in our lives isn't because we manipulate him. Because here's what's interesting. There's a line in here, verse six, it says, behold, we heard of it in Ephrath, and we found it in the fields of Jar. What in the world? They found the ark there. And the reason they did is because so many people tried to grab it and they died trying to do it. And it wasn't because they were just struck dead because God wanted to make an example. It was the fact that the unholy was trying to meet the holy in a place that they couldn't. Even David encountered this, trying to bring it back to Jerusalem. And that's why they found it in these fields, because David tried to bring it back, and one of his own men died touching it. And he grew so angry and upset. And so what happened was it got lost. And the question is, what bridges the gap? What bridges the gap between? What, what, what brings the presence of God? Is it us manipulating God in a, in a circumstance? Is it trying to have God in the place that we want? You know, it'd be easy for us as, <clears throat> I, I think it would may, I'm not quite sure who quoted this, but I, I love how it's said. I think it's Robbie Zacharias again, but I'm not sure. He said, most of the time, nostalgia for us is looking back and saying, making the statement of, look, look at what's happened to the world. Look at what the world has come to. Look at what this is. But what is different about us? What, what is to be different about those who follow the Lord is different. It's this question or this statement. Rather than look at what the world has come to, the, the statement is more of look at what has come to the world. See, that's the difference here in what God is trying to present. That's the nostalgia. This is what the desire is to reach back, is to have the God that meets us. He doesn't wait. His presence isn't waiting. And how he does it is through sacrifice. It's through that gap bridging. How is it brought into that? It's by the future. Look, there are so many songs we could reach back and talk about, talk about nostalgia. Uh, some of which I, I love. I don't know if you like uh, Bruce Springsteen, Glory Days. One of those songs that Glory Days, you know, this reaching back. It's a great song that he's had out forever. And one of that, that song really, if you think about it, is talking about the glory days. It's, it's having the nostalgia is the glory, if you look back and see that. Other songs like uh, American Pie, remember that song? Great song from the 70s, we all sing. It's, it's, we, we sometimes hear the first three minutes and then the rest of the eight and a half minutes we don't hear. Bye, bye, Miss American Pie. Took the Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. You gotta hear it, it's a famous song, amazing. It was actually written historically about, uh, and it talks about the, the day the music died. It was historically written about uh, the death of, uh, the three famous singers all at once on a, in a plane crash, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P. Richardson, who was called the Big Bopper, all at once were on a plane and cr it crashed. And, and really, there's a line in there that says, yeah, and the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, they took the last train for the coast the day the music died. So there's some songs like that that reach back to nostalgia, but they, there's no hope for the, for the future or glory. But this psalm is a lot like one of the current songs I really enjoy by Lanco. It's been out for a little bit, called The Greatest Love Story, country song. It goes like this, and I said, I want to be your forever, so baby, will you be my wife? Now that we know a little bit better, we could have a real nice life, because I'm what you wanted, and you're what I needed, so let's meet in between. 
we're going to be the greatest love story this town has ever seen. It's over and over. And if you read, if you begin that song, the beginning of it starts in their past. And instead of just this nostalgic of what it used to be, it moves, the progression, a greatest love story song, country song, is moving from that to say, hey, nostalgia doesn't have to stay in the past. It actually points to the glory of our future. And that's exactly what the psalm is saying. Because right after verse 10, where it says, for the sake of your servant David, verse 11 says, the Lord swore to David a sure oath. See, it flips it on its head. The psalm begins by David making God an oath. God, I'm gonna do all this work for you. I'm gonna do this. I wanna build you a house. I'm gonna get the ark. I'm gonna put you back where you belong in the center of worship. But the psalm really, and so does, so does the, the history books, if you look back in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, it actually ends with God giving David an oath. It flips it on its head. Because it says this, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. He uses a word that most of us try to avoid, forever. Superlatives, right? Sometimes we use superlatives in certain ways, but what he uses is a superlative to say forever. But if you look at the history after 2 Samuel, the kingdom crashes and burns. I mean, there's no more kings. In fact, the last king of Israel was one of the most ruthless, disobedient to God that they'd ever had. So what happens to the kingdom? How does this work? It works by God coming in and changing it up. He comes to, to David and says, I will establish your kingdom. And this is how I'm going to do it. See, in 2 Samuel 7, it has David coming to Nathan the prophet, the one who really talks to God the most, and says, hey, I live in this amazing cedar house. I want to build a house for God. And of course, Nathan, like any, you know, when, when there's a building project, you know, for a, a pastor, he's like, go and do all that is in your heart, is literally what he says. He says, go build it. That's great. You got the money. Let's do this thing. But then God says, uh-uh, no building plans. We're not gonna do that. And he says this. In verse 13 here of the psalm, you see it. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I dwell, for I have desired it. We've heard that word dwell before. <clears throat> we talked about God's presence and his longing, but how does God really dwell? He says, it's not about me dwelling by you bringing me into the city. It's me dwelling by going to you. And he makes even a claim here to say, I dwell with the poor. I will satisfy the poor. I will clothe the priests. And our saints will sh shout with joy. The poor, the priests, everybody, and, and the people, everyone in between, that God dwells with them. It is not a small thing for a holy God to dwell with his people. And we can use that language a lot, especially as Christians, we talk about that. It's even a word in the incarnation, Emmanuel. We sing it every Christmas. But do, do we really understand that God is taking up residence with us? The, the uniqueness of Christianity and what God is speaking here, that he says in the future, the future hope, that they would never even see from the psalm, 
that we have actually gotten to see and gotten a taste of is that God has actually clothed our suffering, our difficulty, our hardships, our vocations, our fears, our face coverings, our whole life, all the tangibles and intangibles are wrapped up in a person named Jesus. The dwelling he takes so seriously that he found it worthy to not just talk about dwelling, but coming to dwell. To literally take it up into himself. I want to go so far, and and Hebrews says this in another place in in the New Testament, but that it's so close to our sin that he comes to feel the iniquity, the difficulty, the pain, the sorrow, the infirmities, the suffering, that he puts himself in the position of fear, of death, of crying, of sorrow. The New Testament pages are a litany, not just of a story of Jesus, but of the encounter that he has with every part of your current life. See, it's not just a looking back, God's gonna dwell with us. It's actually a looking forward, a hope. Beyond even what they hope that God promises more, he gives more than what they, even the small language of dwelling with his people would give. He sits in it. The daily activities of his people. He took up a job as a carpenter. He felt the rejection with friends. He felt misunderstood when he would speak and people would just walk away. Even when he did things successfully, sometimes only one person would stay and others would leave. And here's what's incredible about this. David is wanting to do this. He's wanting, he says, the Lord swore swore to David a sure oath. Notice that word sure, because David's oath to him was not enough. See, all of us want to build God a house. We figure, and I know this to be true, especially as your pastor, professional Christianity, right? Label all over it. You want to put... If I build you a house, God, then I will really feel accepted. I'll know I'm accepted. If I build your house, if I give to you, then I know that I'll be given back. We all feel that. If I put, whatever I put into this Christian thing, right, I'm gonna get out of it. But God flips it on its head. In fact, David's trying to do what all other kings had tried to do before him, even in their records of this in the first millennia of Assyria trying to build a temple of Asher, which was in decay. And he said this, length of days, give me stability of my reign for the overthrow of my enemies, for the welfare of Assyria. All kings were trying to do that, but God does something different. He wants to distinguish himself from every other God that we try and manipulate and worship. See, the hope of what we have, why does this matter to us? Because David's relationship, this relationship, verse 10, is not just about the person speaking here. It's about us. For the sake of your servant, David, don't turn away the the face of your anointed one. The anointed one isn't just the person speaking. It's not us. It's the one who would carry this through. See, God is saying, you can't build the house, but I will. It's the complete opposite. Instead of us saying, God, if I obey you, then I'll get acceptance. That's how we often live. But God's saying, no, you are accepted and then you can obey. 
you are completely accepted. God is turning it on its head. This is grace at its height for us. If you want to know what grace is in Christian circles and what that really means in the Bible, it means there's no amount of what you can build in your life through any means possible that can gain you acceptance with this God. He's saying, even more so, I'm going to build your house and sustain it. And if you're like me, the question really ends with this. How do we know it's going to come true? How do we know it's true? How do we know? Because our biggest enemy is time, right? And here's where it hits home, is this table. This table talks about that. This table is about how this has been successful. C.S. Lewis again would talk about this when he talked about particularly this psalm. And I don't know about you, but the hardest thing for me is time. And Lewis brought this up when he thought about this. We always say it. You know, when you see a, a, a niece or a nephew or, or a friend's child after some time, a few months, and you go, golly, they grew up. Man, they shot up high, right? Or you feel like you've gone to a vacation and you're coming back and you're like, man, time flies. Lewis says, why are we so surprised by that? Why are we, as he compares us to fish who keep swimming in the water and are surprised by the wetness? It's almost like we haven't gotten used to it. Unless, unless, that is, we're fish that are destined to become land animals, as he says. It means unless there's something that has not only bridged the gap, not only dwelled with us, but has defeated the very thing that reminds us of time itself, death. See, David would die, Solomon would die, all the kings after would die, but there's one king who would come who would actually put himself in the position of death and even death turned backwards. The greatest enemy. That's what this table is about. This table is about the fact that this is the kingdom forever. If you want to know how this is a reality, how our relationship with him is never broken and will always endure. It's not through our body and blood. It's by the fact that this one gave himself. There's no longer an a, a ark with angels' wings where God meets us. He meets us here. And he found it fit to dwell with us in that way. And we get to taste forever, right? This meal is a nostalgic meal, right? Because it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed, as we say all the time, that he took the bread. That night, look, we're talking about the past, that he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Take, eat. All of you do so in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And as we remind ourselves, this is something he did in space and time in the past. And he poured it out. He said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. That is my blood of the new covenant. You saw that word covenant in there. That means the relationship to David is the same relationship God has to us because of this king over your sin. And so as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're not just tasting nostalgia, you're tasting your hope because you're proclaiming that he died and what is he gonna do? As we always say, if he's going to come again.